I'm Ashley Nguyen DeWitt. I am an animation and video game voiceover casting and voice director, as well as a musician and actor and kind of a jack of all trades. Welcome to The Vietnamese. I'm your host, Kenneth Nguyen. Being part of a culture of nearly 100 million Vietnamese people in the world today comes with a lot of pain, proud history, and privilege. Join me as I highlight and explore the Vietnamese experience from all over. Thank you for coming on. Uh, Ashley, first of all, uh, congratulations on the Emmy. And, you know, that's a massive deal. We are, as a community, so proud of you and me personally, very proud. Thank you. Thank you for coming on. Yeah, thank you. I mean, I, it was crazy because, like, uh, the show that we won for Ada Twist Scientist won Outstanding uh, preschool animated series. So we won that series, I mean, which was just so validating <laughs> and wonderful because it was the first um, series that I got to cast and voice direct on my own. So fun, yeah, fun fact, yeah. my my children love that show so much. They watch it all the time. And, you know, <laughs> I brought the kids on to say hello to you, you know, and last yeah. time we talked, but uh, yeah, congratulations. Thank you so much. Yeah, we're really excited about it. And we're just happy that kids are learning science yeah. <laughs> and they like it. <laughs> so, What does it mean to be Vietnamese to you? Oh, wow. So what it means to be Vietnamese to me, um, that's an interesting and complicated question, right? Uh, especially because it's Black History Month. Uh, I am half Black, uh, half Vietnamese. Um, so I would say it's something like what it means to be Vietnamese to me is something that I've struggled with, um, throughout my life. I would say just kind of trying to figure out what either side of my identity means. But, um, I would say that as of late being Vietnamese has given me a sense of community. Um, I would say during, during the pandemic, especially at the beginning of pandemic, I was trying to find something I was trying to find a place uh people that I can relate to people that I could talk to while being isolated um with my husband but you know people outside of you know our relationship to just talk to um so I leaned really heavily into clubhouse and I ended up finding uh the Vietnamese community there and specifically like Vietnamese and entertainment um and those groups really just kind of welcomed me and helped me find the sense of community that I was looking for growing up. Um, so yeah, right now it's just like a, if to me, it's a place of support. Um, yeah. yeah, and it is, and it's turning into that, like as we're evolving as a community in, especially in Los Angeles here, the entertainment mm -hmm. community within the Vietnamese space, it's, uh, it's popping, it's going off. <laughs> yeah. Yes, it is. It yeah, is. we're so connected. And, you know, I think we are known um, throughout, like if you go to Sundance, if you go to any of these film festivals and music events, we are kind of known for being very unified as a group, as a, as a culture compared yeah. to other Asians. Yeah, that's really cool. And I and I definitely have felt that too, because I feel like as soon as I was discovered <laughs> by the community, they were like, oh, you're one of us, please, please, <laughs> please come. And I'm like, yes. And and it's really hard too, because uh, that is something that I've always struggled with is finding kind of just like a place, yeah. a sense of a group of people where there is support. So I'm really just happy that now, especially at this point in my career and this kind of point in my life that I am finding that. Before we get into how your parents met, yeah, I want to give a shout out to our dear friend Mary Goodchild. Yes, Mary, my yes. love. Yes. Oh. And Mary and I have known each other for a long time, and it was so mind blowing to see that you two were friends. But it just shows that you know LA is a big place, but not really. It's kind of a small place when you think about it. Yeah, yeah. Mary and I, we met. Um, uh, so after I graduated college, I was part of the Independent Shakespeare Company that did free Shakespeare in Griffith Park, that does free Shakespeare in Griffith Park, I should say. Um, and Mary was a company member and we ended up being in a fake band together one year and where we had to play twins in a fake band. And if anybody knows Mary, we do not look alike, uh, but we are, uh, you know, we are twins. And it, honestly, that experience just brought us super, super close together. And we've been, you know, pretty much besties for a decade. Very so, cool. Well, yeah. shout out to Mary. Yeah. <laughs> so how did your parents meet? 
My parents, okay, so my parents met because my father's the police officer, right, um, all my life. And um, in the 80s, I'd say mid to late 80s, my mother moved from L.A. to Northern California and somehow ended up being a dispatcher for um, the, I believe it was East Palo Alto PD. And my dad was a cop. And uh, <laughs> the joke was that, he was the only cop that my mom was nice to over the radio. And she said it's because he was a good cop. And I also think it was because he was cute. Like, <laughs> so, uh, yeah, that's how they met. They met They met at work. And your mother's African-American, right? Yes, she's African-American. And, and your father. And your father came to the United States very early, actually, right? Yeah, yeah, in 1967. So wow. very early. He was, he was young. I believe it was like April or something of 1967. And, yeah. and I think that we had discussed that he, at one point, was a Marine before he was a cop. Yeah, he was a Marine. He was actually the, the first Vietnamese Marine, so uh, first Vietnamese-born Marine in the United States Marine Corps um, since the fall of Saigon. So he's the very first. <laughs> you know, I, I want to know if you and your father ever have discussions about Black Lives Matter and all the police work that he has to go through uh, and, you know, all of this stuff that's been going on in the, in our country, you know, do you guys have that discussion with him being, you know, police, a uh, former police person? Um, I would say that we have discussed it, um, but it's so, it's such a delicate subject, especially because I, I did grow up in law enforcement, right? And even on my mother's side, like my uncle was a police officer for um, LA and Inglewood and like all of that and like down here. And so like on both sides, there's law enforcement, right? Um, and I do have thoughts. I do have like very particular thoughts about how things are now um, and the state of policing now. But I will say that like my father is one of those types of cops that really did it for good. Uh, really just to serve and protect and make sure that people are safe. Um, and I do respect that about him and I do respect his opinions about certain things, but we are on the same page that there, there are issues within the system um, that uh, as, you know, the years have gone and how um, I would say the requirements to become a police officer have been a bit lax because they're hurting for bodies like um that it's not the same as it was and and you know your father and i are probably going to have a discussion very soon and yeah uh, shout out to your dad and yeah the audience that that will be coming and the reason why i am really interested in his story is obviously because former marine Mm-hmm. Uh, came, you know, very early to the United States and yeah. being a police officer and working very interesting beats. And I think that discussion about having a Vietnamese person join the police force so early on uh, after the war is a very yeah. interesting perspective that I, I really can't wait to hear. Yeah, and he's, I'm sure that he'll have a lot of really interesting and thought-provoking things to say about that. Yeah, Because he dealt with a lot, so... <laughs> How did you get involved with music? And then we'll talk about, you know, performing and, and voiceover yes, work. Yeah. But how did you get into music? So um, I grew up in a very musical household. My mother sang all my life. My mother's a singer, has, has sung all my life. Uh, my father loves music and always, like, always constantly playing music to us when we were kids. So um, my mom and I used to sing a lot when we were little um she would sing to us every single night um and then like every saturday my dad would blast music uh, to wake us up over the sound system in our house and so he was the one who would share like all different types of like um stuff from like motown the beatles to like bob marley to queen um to like tower park and then from the east bay so like a lot of like bay area sort of like funk um that sort of stuff punk music uh santa claus is the one who gave me um battle of los angeles rage against the machine but santa is was also my dad my dad gave me like the one of the most anti-authoritarian like 
CDs of albums of all time, you know, but like, it's just because he wanted to expand my knowledge and just wanted me to like, listen and, and be happy. So like, I've been just doing it all my life. I've been singing since my mother used to joke since before I was out of the womb. So. Yeah. <laughs> Buddy is listening to uh, this conversation about music with Ashley. Please go to Spotify or Apple uh, music and find the track rise again. Mm-hmm. You know, I heard that track before I ever met you. <laughs> it's almost iconic for me. Like it's, a, um, it's at that level, right? It's uh, and I just don't want to, you know, blow through people's expectations. But it is such a a, a well written song, well sung, well performed. You know, it, it's um, something that that I want to actually talk about because mm-hmm. how much soul that goes into a song like rise again mm-hmm. really depends on where you grew up musically not only mm-hmm. geographically but musically in, in in our heads whether you sing at a church a black gospel church or wherever you come from that flavor will be missing if you didn't grow up a certain way and yeah. I, I don't know how to say it without you know coloring it more but can you talk to that experience? Well, you know, what's so interesting is that I would sing at home. That is where I sing, um, where I learned how to sing, where I learned a lot of my intonation is from listening to singers um, and mimicking. That was something that I did a lot was mimic. Or I would sing with my mom. My mom bought a, got a karaoke machine when I was in elementary school, and my mom and I would sing karaoke every night or on the weekends, just the two of us. Um, and a lot of just the way that I have uh kind of put together my voice I guess um stolen from everybody that I listened to so it's just kind of like an amalgamation of all of these great singers that I leaned into so like I was obsessed with Sarah Vaughn and like Billie Holiday and the Ella Fitzgerald I was obsessed with Celine Dion I was obsessed with Whitney Houston uh Gladys Knight uh Jeff Buckley even like uh just like that his really just nice clean bright like big uh, sound dramatic um pink floyd like i was listening to all of these things freddie mercury these different voices and vibratos and things and i would take what i liked and kind of just married them into into um into how i sound today um and i would say that for rise again it that song came to me right when i needed it right um it was at the end of 2020 um so we'd been in in lockdown for for a good a good while at that point um probably a little bit over six months and and uh, my friend Alana Dothanseka was writing this song for the King Arthur Baking Company um and they were doing their rebranding holiday campaign and they wanted this like timeless sounding song and so she wrote these these words and I was the person that she thought of because she wanted to have like a woman of color be the singer, be the voice of this moment of this, of this movement. And so I was really just singing the demo and then she pitched me with the demo and they wanted me to sing for the commercial. And then she was like, you know what, we, I, we should write, we should, you know, produce a whole song. So we did the entire song and we released it as like a single. Um, And it was kind of at that weird crux in my life where I really just hadn't been doing music a lot because I was sad because I was in lockdown and I just couldn't pull myself into doing something that I really enjoyed. And like the fact that the first line is, uh, don't it feel like the end? like that's what I was feeling uh and when I first sang it and it was just everything that I was feeling and all the emotions and I realized as I was singing it that like there are probably a lot of people who feel the same yeah um and I've got and it's been three years now and like the commercial comes every holiday season at this point it's been you know three years and and uh and I still get like messages from people being like, it's that time of the year again, or this song is really important to me, or I've been listening to this song all week because I've been having like something really bad happen to me and this is pulling me out of it. And it's just like, I'm just so thankful to 
you know, be the voice to that and, um, and that people have that. So I, I, I told you, I hate to compare you uh, to these two powerhouses, but Amy Winehouse and Adele uh, yeah. come to mind when I listen to rise again, <laughs> you know, and you know, and I, I'm a big fan of Andre Day's song uh, mm-hmm. with the rise up. Yeah. Rise and, up. And I, I'll be honest with you, the, the power, the, the vocals on Rise, uh, your song Rise Again is like even bigger. Oh, than song. Yeah. That's crazy. Don't say it. No. Where <laughs> to God, that's how I feel about it, you know? Oh, and, man. You know, and, and just, you know, it, it's up there with the pantheon of, of, of Rise Up and, you know, Andre Day's song and Rise Again. I mean, it's like for me, it's like those two songs lift me when i'm you know i do i listen i listen to rise again all the time you know because yeah. i i love hearing it thank you and i feel like it's really interesting too because like because i'm someone and i feel like in 2020 for me because of black lives matter because of george floyd like that was really really hard for me um and then compound that with the next year of stop asian hate like that was just like so like both sides of my, you know, both sides of, of me are just being ripped to shred by this country, right? Uh, just really just just feeling helpless and hopeless. And so like when Stop Asian Hate and like all those fundraisers started happening, uh, like a lot of the community found Rise Again. And so like on Clubhouse, I would sing it for like fundraisers for that. And it kind of became synonymous with that. Um, and so like I, I'm just I'm just happy that People find meaning and enjoyment, you know, in it. Yeah. Um, yeah. It's a wonderful track. It's, it's just really amazing. Thank now, you. A lot of people uh, don't really get to live their dreams because it's, you know, it's, <laughs> you know, singing, it's, it's all these things that are abstract. And, but getting to carry out art and making money of it and making a living out of it, what led to that mindset where you are today because you are able to really float in the world of, of making money from your voice and in very different dimensions, not only just music, but, you know, talk to me a little bit about the voice acting and the voice casting and voice directing world. Yeah. I mean, like, so for me, it's something I've, been it's a long con right it's something I've been planning for a a long time and I didn't realize I was planning it until like I set myself up for it and I was like oh that makes sense because um so I was a theater major I went to Cal State Northridge um and how I got into voice over and voice casting because I got into voice casting before I really even got into voice acting um was there was a woman who came to my school to do a masterclass to talk about voice casting and voiceover. And uh, when she was done with her masterclass, I asked her if she needed an intern for the summer because I didn't want to go home. And I was like, this is interesting. Like, do you need an intern for the summer? And she said, yeah. And I worked for them unpaid for an entire summer, but I got to learn the world of like commercial voice casting and like what it meant, like how they found actors, how they talked to agents that, and the company was also a school. So I got to work in their school and I ended up being like a sound engineer so I could kind of like see the technical aspect of it as well as like seeing people in the booth and seeing people being directed and and that and so uh I I did that my between my junior and senior year of college and then when I graduated um they offered me a a paid position there and I said I will work part-time because I am a theater major and I want to be an actress I want to try to pursue that and I was offered to be in the independent Shakespeare company. So um, I did part-time Shakespeare in the, in the park and then other part-time like um, working for this voice casting company. And then I kind of just hopped around. Um, I did an after-school program for high school that taught like uh, act, like acting and singing and, and dance and leadership, which was another fun way to get paid to like be creative and do that. But it's just because I didn't quite want to settle yet until I realized one day um, I was working for a boutique casting company and I ended up being a booth director, like directing actors for their auditions in the booth, like actually giving direction and them listening to me and responding. And I realized that I liked that. And it, and it was something that married my theater degree because I know how to talk to actors and I understand like the way to like speak within that world. Um, and how actors react and how certain actors would like how to read actors 
Um, but it also gave me uh, the choice to be even also pr- pragmatic, right? Um, so like I get to make certain choices and I get to, to do things and like have that power of like, this is an actor that I'm going to push along because they are good. This is an actor that even though they're requested, that's a bad audition. I'm not going to give that to you and I can make that decision. Um, But like it got to the point where like I wanted to be in like after booth directing, I, I started directing um, like more animated stuff uh, for auditions. And I realized I really liked cartoons and I've always liked cartoons and video games. So like I applied to work for DreamWorks Um, from there. And at that point, uh, because I thought my day job was theater acting and my part-time job was like voice casting, which is yeah. like such a wackadoo mindset. Uh, but I was like, so just like, I'm going to be an actor. Right. Um, that about four years into me working in voice casting, like I applied for DreamWorks and they immediately called me in for an interview and I got hired because I had it, I had four years of four plus years of experience on my resume at that point. Um, But my mindset wasn't like, my mindset was like, now I'm going to go into like animation casting and see what this is, but I'm still, maybe I'll still try to act. But once I got to the corporate lifestyle, I was like, oh no, this is a career. Wow. (laughs) I got a career job. And so like I started, so I worked there for a couple of years and I was a talent relations coordinator and casting coordinator. So what I did was I ran quite a few shows, um, the recording room of it. So I would do a lot of scheduling. I was the liaison between uh, the studios, the agents and actors, uh, the casting team, as well as like the producers and the executives. So I was kind of like a catch-all doing everything while also being in the recording room for that show for every record where I got to basically shadow, I got to shadow the best voice directors in the business. Like I got to shadow Andrea Romano. I got to shadow like Sam Regal and Katie McWayne and Christy Reed, who eventually became like my mentor. And it's a person who like took me under their wing and helped me get the opportunities to be where I am today. Um, So like when I was leaving DreamWorks, I reached out to them and we we talked and they offered uh, me to be their assistant and they would let me shadow them meet other studios and uh, start pitching me for projects to kind of teach me how to be a voice director because there's no way, real way to do it. It's kind of everyone has their own way of doing it. Um, and so, uh, yeah, they're the one that introduced me to Chris Nee, which is how I got onto Ada Twist. Um, and like, which is crazy because that was my first show and it was produced by the Obamas. Like, yeah. Which is like, <laughs> and then like she introduced me to Rebecca Sugar, who uh, did Steven Universe, and I, um, I cast and voice directed the anti-racism initiative for them in 2020. Um, I got to work with one of my favorite cartoon properties of all time, and that was a dream. Um, and then from there, it's just kind of all word of mouth. Um, my reputation kind of preceded yeah. me at that point. And, and that's the the thing too. I think when young people are getting into these abstract fields where there's no real career path defining way, right? You kind of have to spend that first year interning for free and working for free to learn everything you possibly can about this field. So it can potentially open up doors for you in the future. Of course, I will say I should have gotten paid for that summer. The amount of money, the amount of work that I was doing, and like what I was doing, I was like, I should have gotten paid. Uh, but <laughs> like, but I will say, yeah, it is about the grind, and it's not some, and it's something that I have spoken to like recent graduates about. Uh, it's like, yes, you were the top of your class, and you're the golden child of this microcosm. But when you go out into the mm. real world, you're going to have to start from the bottom. You're not going to be a director from the jump. Yeah. You're going to have to be a director's assistant first <laughs> for a while. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's like, but again, it's like you hear about mine and my sort of trajectory. And it's like, I started here and then I bounced over here and then I got into this place. And like now, and like I was a voice director on Tiny Tunes for, for Amblin, which is crazy. And like, I was doing stuff for Cartoon Network and I direct for like Disney. I would direct for like all the big, all the big boys. Um, But I started when I was 20 and I'm 20, I'm 33 now. So it's, it took me 30 
it, yeah, it took me about 13 years to get to this point that I'm at right now. And really it took me 10 years, like a whole decade to, for someone to even give me the chance to cast and direct on my own. So like, I'm young, but I've been like, I've been working yeah. really hard. The future is a hefty responsibility and not one that we take lightly, but then taking things lightly has never been what hefty is about. That's why we've created the hefty renew program that turns hard to recycle plastics into valuable resources like park benches and building materials. To participate, simply fill up an orange Hefty Renew bag with accepted items, tie it up, and drop it in with your regular recycling. That's it. It's that easy. It's time to rethink recycling with Renew. Particular valued resources may vary by geography. More info available at heftyrenew.com. That's really what it takes in Hollywood to Mm -hmm. get that sort of, and I'm sure, you know, a lot of people don't have the support from our families and stuff like that. And so it takes a tremendous amount of faith in yourself and then, you know, people around you are kind of, you know, helping you facilitate your life to yeah. get to where you need to go. And I think that I was really lucky, right? Uh, my parents are my number one fans. Like, again, when I was in college doing all these shows, I did cabaret where I was like in like laundry or whatever. My dad front and center, even my Benoit, like, like front and center watching me like do cabaret right you know like when they would drive to come see Shakespeare in the park I would see my dad dead asleep like from backstage until I'm on stage and then he his ear is trained to me like so supportive same thing with like my mom like just so supportive of like me being in the arts me being in music just wanting me to be happy um and I think that a lot of it comes down to is like they're both very artistic people like my dad was a photography major my mom again, love theater and music and art as well. And like really just kind of gave that to my brother and I. Um, And so they worked so hard in their positions to give us the support to be able to do what we want. And I, and I, but also they instilled a a lot of work ethic in me um, to like strive to be the best. Right. Um, And that's such a, you know, such a like a like a buzz phrase, uh, sort of like a parent of color buzz phrase. You have to be a well, hundred times better than your white counterparts to break even or something, you know, yeah. something like that. And so I took that when I learned that in elementary school and I ran with it. Um, and I and I've gotten to the point where like now I have made my career where like I don't work in a corporate structure and I can make my own schedule. Um, so I can take those projects. Like if I audition for a voice acting role and I book it, I can go do that. And then the next day I'll be voice directing or the next day I have a day off or I'll be like writing and I can just do that. And like my, my rate and like the way that I've scheduled myself supplements, supplement my lifestyle my husband also has a full-time job that's nice um so like we support each other and I will also say too that a lot of the big thing the big leap into me being my own entity like leaving corporate animation was the support that my husband gave me um that makes such a big difference right it it really really did because uh like there was a point where he was like you need to be happy doing what you want to do and you there's so much more to you and so like like leap you know i'm here to support you um and so i'm very very shout out to joe dewitt (laughs) for being the best (laughs) what a blessing what a blessing to have a spouse really support the work that you do Mm -hmm. yeah so um can you sort of talk a little bit about the idea of a person of color, a female, yeah. working in a predominantly white-dominated space? Like, how does that all work? How do you feel about all that? You know, it's so funny. I, I grew up in a predominant, a white-predominated space. You know, like I grew up in in the Bay Area. I grew up in the San Ramon Valley, which is a very like yeah. affluent area I would say um and I will say that like I was moved there right like I I went to elementary school in San Leandro my dad was a San Leandro cop we were in like that Oakland side and then uh one of my um elementary school teachers probably my kindergarten teacher told my dad like should probably put her in a 
a school that will challenge her. Um, so when I was, so we moved to San Ramon, right? And I was challenged in those schools. I definitely was like challenged and the curriculum was different and that's a whole other thing. Um, but I grew up in a white predominant, like a predominantly white neighborhood. And so like, I was used to dealing with white egos all my life. Um, and so being in this space, in this position, I think especially because of like the way things are just kind of the way the universe has been in the past like five years and the way that things are moving culturally and just kind of how people of color are taking up more space, um, especially in the entertainment industry and are like, given more opportunities I'd say that like I was really lucky to have two particular people I would say Christy Reed who is my mentor and Chris Nee who is was the creator of Ada Twist um and they're both white uh women who wanted me to succeed and wanted to give me the opportunity and was like I want you to have this opportunity because I feel like it's really important to have a voice such as yours in this position on the side of the glass, especially on projects where there are actors that reflect you on the other side. And uh, just for a, a need of authenticity, like there, it's just, it's different. Um, and so because I have been able to navigate those types of personalities just growing up being coming into a record room as a director is fine for me uh because it's my room and I'm the one that's that's running it and I have that confidence um so in me to like yeah so at the end of the day I want to know is it really a detriment you know as a person of color as a female but do we are we able to really punch through if we're just fucking badass right i think so yeah right? i mean i i think so yeah. i i feel like i honestly i feel like a lot of it is confidence and a lot of it is just like competence not even right? competence it's competence it's confidence uh mostly competence too because it's like there are a lot of incompetent white people in very high positions mm -hmm. you know who've gotten there just because they could, yep. right? Um, so, but I think that for a lot, for like people of color, especially women of color, competence is a huge thing. Like you have to be able to back your shit up. You gotta right? know your shit, yeah. Yeah, and you have to be confident in your job and that you came in and that you're hired for a reason and that like, that's it, right? And I'm a director, so like, I'm the I'm directing a scene. I'm directing these actors. I'm the one that's directing the room. Um, so I do work with with white showrunners, but I have never felt in any sort of way that like me being female or being a person of color would ever make them not listen to me in any sort of way because they hired me initially because they trust my ability. Um, so I think for me, it's a little different also, cause I, just, I guess I just don't have that, that chip in my brain that makes me worried about what, what they think when I'm yeah. doing things. Uh, and I will also say too, that like being in the room as a, as a person of color, a woman of color is nice too, because when there are moments of like microaggression, or if there are moments where there are things said where I'm like, no, we're not going to do that. Or that feels weird. Or I'm like, that seems like it could be construed as um, racist, right? <laughs> like, I can call that out and be like, how about we how about we take a step back? And if we really need to pick it up, we'll pick it up later in pickups. But, but I also have a feeling that when you do call people out, it's not directly called out in that way. Or do you? Like, oh, that's racist. Um, no, I mean, it depends. I mean, there are some times where, like, I'll be like, maybe that's not the best way of saying that. And then how do you interject or inject your way of saying, because you're like, can you give it a little bit more hood? I mean, you're not going to talk like uh, that. No, 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 no. You never ask because that's offensive, right? What does totally. that mean, hood, right? Right, right? That right there, you're asking for a stereotype and that is absolutely offensive. Exactly. And, like, and you and I had this conversation before, so yeah. you brought up really awesome ways to to direct your actor or the people in the room. Yeah. 
I feel like a lot of times with those sort of directions, it's not a direction. Like what you're asking is like a character trait. Um, and really what I need for you from you, and this is you like empirical yeah, right? yeah. producer, uh, is to be specific. So it's like if someone is like, I want it to be more urban or more hood, I'll be like, okay, um, what do you mean? Like, what does that mean to you? And if they get flustered, it's just like, then you're trying to ask for a stereotype, right? (laughs) And, or if they, if they lean into it, they're like, you know, more urban. And I'll be like, why don't you give us an example? Oh, shit. Or I'll be like, um, can you give me a line read? And they'll be like, no. And I'll be like, all right, well, then we'll pick it up later. Um, Or I'll be like, give me a second. Let me think about it. And we'll, we'll come back to it later. And then I try to internalize a little bit what they're asking, because you can't, like, I, I'm still a director working for clients, right? Right. Like, and I will say that this is happening less and less now because people know better, um, or they should. But I would say that for me, I would try to find a more specific adjective than just urban or hood. Maybe they wanted you to come a little bit more aggressive lower in your voice maybe they want you to sit back into it maybe they want you to lean into the culture a little bit lean into like the culture of the world of the neighborhood you're in like that sort of thing as opposed to being like do it more black yeah you know or more asian you know or more accented or whatever i'm like do whatever authentically feels nice to you, but I need you to like lean back into it, be a little bit meaner and maybe that'll hurt, you know, but there are certain ways to direct an actor without offending them. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> no, this is a great subject. Cause I, you know, how could you get to certain characters that are people of color, but you have white people directing and how do you get that authenticity if you don't have the language to direct them? You know, yeah. if you don't have that EQ to really carry out the the subtle, t- the, the, the nuances of the conversation. I think, and I also think too, it's just like the way that brains associate things as we get older and the way that generation and the way that slang has changed too. Like I do use a lot of slang. I always feel like a old head, right? Yeah. Whenever I'm like directing these kids and I'm like, no cap for real though. <laughs> like, you know, but you know, like, but I try to incorporate something that they will identify. So right. if I was talking to an actor of color and I was like, so like the Beyonce of scientists just walk in and, and, and your friend is very familiar. And then with that person, how would you react? Like, you know, being like, this is Beyonce. This is like a cultural point, like a cultural perspective, pop culture, something that makes sense to get a performance out of it. Um, when like adjectives don't work, you know? Um, so I do use a lot of situational things. I use, I try to, sometimes a lot of times with kids, I use things from their own lives. Like I, yeah, I could give a whole directing seminar and like, how do you get things from actors from young to old? Um, but but yeah, yeah, I feel like me, like I can identify a lot better with, with, um, with actors of color in that sort of way, because I'll be like, has your mama ever, you know? And they're like, yes. And I'm like, great. (laughs) So that feeling, (laughs) you know, but that's like, I know that I can say that because we identify, like we've built a certain level of trust already that I can be like this. And they'd be like, yes. And and that is very powerful because when we think of, third culture kids, right? We think yeah. of like a Vietnamese American uh, culture is coming together to make a third culture. But when we have a mix of Vietnamese and African-American, we're bringing that together to form uh, some fluidity within even the white culture. So you have a, a toolbox, a plethora of tools to really yeah. talk to you know, the whole gamut. You have Asians, you have African-Americans, white kids, you know. I know, and it's so funny. And, like, and me, the way that my voice generally sounds, I sound I sound like a white girl, to yeah. be honest, yeah. straight up. And, I, and it's so funny, too, because I've had, when I was assisting, right, in offices, like, I would talk to agents. And I remember there's one, like... I don't exactly remember what they said, but it was offensive to Asians, right? They were making some offhand joke. And I was like, 
dude, you do know that I'm Asian, right? And he was like, oh, I was like, we're Facebook friends. My last name is Nguyen, very clearly. Uh, and then he was like, and then he flustered, and I was like, and I'm also black, too. Like, <laughs> you know, but it's just like, it's a, a, it has helped me kind of, you know, navigate through many different like, and I mean, there, and there are different, like, there's a lot of properties like, uh, what is it? Sorry to bother you is a great movie about that entire situation of just like code switching and that sort of thing. But I feel like I'm code switching. Sometimes I code switch in my own family, um, too, because of like how I move between the different sides of my family. It's, it's all, it's all complicated. <laughs> Going back to the whole family thing, I, I wanted to ask you too, is the African-American side and the Vietnamese side, how close are they and how much of each other's world do they understand? Um, I would say that like, so on my dad's side, I have my grandmother and my uncle, and then my mom is one of seven. <laughs> so um, I'd say growing up, like Thanksgiving is a huge thing for my family. It's yeah. Generally, like on my mom's side, we all get together. There's like 50 plus of us. Um, but Benoit is always invited. Right. And everyone cooks and stuff. So Benoit would bring egg rolls and that was like the big hit and they were always gone immediately. And that was like a huge thing. So like Benoit would like bring like, like and like, and just like bring a whole plate and like, she would teach me how to make it. We would like make a bunch of it and like, um, and bring it. And like, that was a way of them sharing. Like that's probably the best example of like the melding of cultures for me and my family. And like, they love each other. Like uh, my Benoit will send my grandma. So my Benoit, she's, I think she's 84. Um, I want to say, I'm sorry, Benoit, if I'm wrong. Uh, and then my, uh, my granny is 97. Wow. So, uh, jeans to yeah, yeah. Jeans. And so, uh, and I'm also sorry if that number is wrong, but it's still, it's approximate. Yeah, I think it's right. Um, and so Benoit would send granny books, like holidays, like they would exchange things. They would write, you know, it's just very, very sweet support of each other. And like they sat together at my wedding. Um, we sat them together and it was just really nice too to have, both of them there um and yeah like i would say now contemporary they support each other enough i don't know what it was like yeah in the, the beginning in the 80s when things are different um yeah. but but i think there's also an advantage with your banoi and your father coming so early too because yeah. You know, when you come in 75, you come in 80, 85, as you progress, there's just more Vietnamese. There's more Vietnamese people here. And it's unfortunately more cliquish, right? Yeah. yeah. So, but if, you come in, if you're coming in in 67 and you're this woman and her two sons and you come, you are forced to confront reality in a very different way because you have no support and no sort of like community you know, talking through right. your ear about like, oh, we got to do this certain way and do that. No, and she like, and she, so she immigrated, they immigrated in 67 and like, she got married eventually to my grandpa Don and I believe, and my father can correct me uh, if I'm wrong, uh, that he sent, that she sent him over there to bring her family here. Oh. To like help bring them here. So, um, like her family did end up being here eventually, like bringing them over here. I don't know the specifics particularly about like how, what that, that story is, but, um, but I mean, isn't it badass that she just like came here and like made a way, like owned a restaurant at some point, like crazy when you think you about know, that translator, story. she translated for the FBI. She retired as a translator for the FBI. What? Wait, she yeah. <laughs> was a translator for the FBI for how many years? A long time, probably since, yeah, like, I was in elementary school through, she retired probably when I was in college, so, like, a good over a decade. So she was or, in the FBI on the translating side? Yeah, she worked for the FBI on the translating side. 
Yeah, I told you my family's crazy. <laughs> we got we got we got a lot of stories. Right. We gotta hit up your grandma. We gotta hit up your grandmother, get her on the show. We gotta get her on the podcast. That is crazy, interesting shit to me. I'm like, okay, your dad's very interesting, but like I think but no, it's a little bit more like all right, let me get her. You know, and it's kind of built. It's so funny. It's because it's like it starts with Benoit, and then it's like my dad and his life, and then mine and my life, and then who knows, like what, yeah. <laughs> what yeah. else and stuff. But I feel like we're just we're just kind of all we we all work hard, and we all just kind of do it, try to do what we love, and try to do it like we can go to hard. survive and be happy. Yeah, yeah we go hard. Go so. hard. Now you play four different instruments. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> I do. I pick. I pick. I pick up instruments every now and then, and I uh, and I try to play them as the, to the best of my abilities. Yeah. How did that happen? How did four instruments go down with your voice? I think uh, five instruments, by the way. Just... So I. So when I was um, when I was a kid, they put us in like piano, right? And I was really bad at learning from a teacher, like a piano teacher. And I think the piano teacher that they had me with was particularly mean um and so like I quit and I just started playing by ear my brother is a violinist brilliant little violinist like from elementary school I was always so jealous of how well he could play the violin um so I kind of got back into piano too because I was like I want to play too um and then like when I was around 15 I got really into like punk I wanted to play guitar and so my dad got me my first guitar which is behind me yeah I still have it um it was a johnson it's like sparkly black johnson i think he got from like target or something um and i was like really into like play so i like learned how to play a bunch of green day songs because that was around the time that green day came back <laughs> uh, and i was like really into like punk and i had like a green day cover bit it was just a whole thing and so i started playing and I, I started doing the singer songwriter thing so i started like writing my own songs, and i also dabbled in piano because i still remembered how to do that and then uh, when I started working with the Shakespeare Company, um, they found out I can sing and kind of play instruments. So I started playing bass for them. Um, and so I played bass and uh, I helped uh, compose music for their production of Romeo and Juliet in like 2015, wow. where we had like a live like prog punk rock band on stage. Um, and we underscored it like it was a movie and it was like really, really cool. But I was playing bass and it was the first time that I'd like played bass in front of people and I was playing bass and singing and I feel like like playing instruments and singing just kind of came to me um and so like I picked up ukulele at that point because around that time all the girls were singing with the ukulele so I figured why not me too and so like I did that and then um the year that I was getting married was 2019 my friend Becky who is just like this insane jazz singer but also like punk like badass uh asked me if i wanted to play bass in her 60s garage punk band um for a tour in europe for two weeks what and that was two months before my wedding and i said yes you have to right well also i like well i hung up and i turned to my husband and i was like becky Becky just asked me to go on tour to europe for two weeks he's like when i was like in july and he was like we're getting married in september i was like yes and he was like if you do if you don't do it you're gonna resent me forever and i was like no you gotta do it yes (laughs) so i did it but how how Um, efficient was your bass playing at that point I mean, I learned all the songs really well and I got to groove on my own and like I knew kind of where everything was and I can just play around and it's punk. So it's like, yeah, I could do it. But I mean, I was, we we're playing like cramps. We we're playing like like this song. One of the songs we were playing was Bikini Girls or yeah. Uh, bikini girls with machine guns in the bass. It's so bass heavy, and it's like boom, 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 and like that's what I had to do, and it's just like a rockabilly like mm-hmm. like bass. And I was like, all right, I guess I'm learning this, and I just learned it for the song, and it became muscle memory. And I think for me, a lot of like instrument playing is all muscle memory. Muscle memory. Yeah, and like now I can like understand like if you say play an A chord like on a piano, I know where that is because yeah. I been putzing around for so long that it's absorbed but like i'm not formally trained and for singing my mom my mom's the one who taught me how to sing that's amazing that's an insane story about (laughs) what is the ultimate game goal for you oh like like end game like what i want 
Yeah, what 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 does the yeah. end game look like? I ask this. The end game looks like me in a fisherman boat uh, on the Hawaiian, like just off in the sunset doing nothing, uh, like on a beach somewhere. That's the end game. Retired. Um, have you have you been to Vietnam? I have. Yeah, yeah. Benoit took took us in 2014. Um, and by us, I mean, Benoit went with her grandchildren and like my aunt and uncle came to, but brought her grandchildren back to Vietnam. And that was her first time back since they left and in the 60s. What was it like? What was your experience like with, you know, with your Benoit? But, you know, obviously people in Vietnam are not used to seeing. You no, know. I mean, it was really cute because so we were on like one of those tours. So we did like Cambodia, Thailand, and we ended in Vietnam. Yeah. And we went all over it. Like we went to a bunch of places in Vietnam. So we were in Hoi An, we went to Halong Bay, we went to Hue, we were in Saigon, we were in Hanoi, we were in wherever, you know, like we went all the way up. And it was crazy because like, I'm the grandchild that I always want to make sure my grandparents are okay. And so I will be with you like on your hips. I didn't do a lot of like exploring of like nightlife or anything. I just kind of like stuck with Benoit and it was a really interesting just to kind of see her process, you know, being back and while also wanting to share, you know, this country with us. Um, and I would say that a lot of the reactions of people were, I was, they were proud of us for going back with our grandma. <laughs> like a lot of people were just like proud of us for being there. Uh, and just like, saying how beautiful we are or that I look like her or like, you know, um, and just like, just being really supportive of the fact that we were supporting our, our yeah, grandmother, grandmother back there, That's which was to Vietnamese people. Yeah. And I was always worried. Right. Cause I didn't know, I didn't know how I would be perceived because I very much, a, I present as African-American um, with my natural hair full afro right mm. my natural hair is a full afro um so like i didn't know how it would be perceived and from that experience it was very positive everyone was so nice and like just really cool with us so i'm yeah. glad to hear it yeah well thank you so much today to you know for you spending the time to share all this stuff with me i look forward to meeting you in person very soon and yes. seeing you live soon mm -hmm. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for, for you know accepting that and uh you know i can't wait yeah i'm so excited wonderful thank you so much once again um ashley we'll talk very soon all right thank you thank you for listening to the vietnamese with kenneth Wynn. The Vietnamese is produced by Brittany Tran. Special thanks to Jane Wynn, Catherine Wynn, Tina Pham, Sydney Jamie, and Christo Trin. Please find us on Instagram, Facebook, and TikTok at The Vietnamese Podcast. You can also find us on YouTube where you can subscribe, like, and comment. Please rate and give us a review wherever you find our podcasts.